I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Cystic fibrosis is a ravaging genetic disease that is progressively degenerative, commonly referred to as CF. You may have heard that. Cystic fibrosis causes persistent lung infections, and over time, it limits the ability of a person to breathe. And typically, a, a lifespan today for a patient with CF, not usually beyond the mid-40s. We're about to learn more about the history of the treatment of CF, where medicine has been and where it is now, from Bijal Trivedi, who is a freelance journalist. She specializes in biology, health, and medicine. She's author of Breath from Salt, A Deadly Genetic Disease, A New Era in Science, and The Patients and Families Who Changed Medicine Forever. She's on the line with us. Bijal Trivedi, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Among the various heroic stories that you tell is the story of one O'Donnell family. And I thought that would be a good place to start before we even talk about the more abstract aspects of this disease and its treatment. And I, th I think, of course, the focal point of this particular story is the boy Joey. Let's begin with, with Joey, can we? Sure, sure. So Joey O'Donnell was born in, in 1974 and he was born with cystic fibrosis. Uh, he got a, a bad gene from his mom and a bad gene from his dad, and that caused the disease in him. Um, but Joey wasn't diagnosed for almost six months, which was a terribly, terribly traumatic endeavor for his family. So Joe and Kathy um, had never had kids before. They were healthy. They came from healthy families, and they'd never even been in hospitals uh, before Joey was born. And after Joey was born, I mean, he looked perfectly normal at birth. He was a little small, but it was only over the coming months that, that Kathy O'Donnell um, was convinced that something was horribly wrong with her son. Um, her, his stool didn't seem normal. He didn't seem to gain any weight, no matter how much he ate. And he was always coughing and gagging whenever she tried to feed him. And he also developed all these, these tiny little red dots all over his skin. And it took six months before the doctors figured out that Joey suffered from cystic fibrosis. And during those six months, I mean, poor Joey's body just went went through hell basically it you know his lungs were uh really brutally devastated um during those initial six months he wasn't able to uh, gain weight he even went through cardiac failure um so they just went through an absolutely horrible time um but after six months and after his diagnosis um joey o'donnell uh began to thrive against all odds. And uh, he began to thrive, he began to grow, and he grew into a, a beautiful little boy. Now, the story here is uh, compelling to me just on the basis of the story alone, but we, we need to kind of get the, the surrounding context for it. Was C.F kind of a household phrase? Did people know what it was back in the 70s? Was this relatively new on the scene? If the doctors had a hard time diagnosing it, I'm just wondering how much was even known? You know, it, it's really interesting. Cystic fibrosis was sort of officially characterized by this amazing woman in 1938, and her name was Dorothy Anderson. And Dorothy Anderson was a real anomaly. She was this tough tough woman uh, in a field that was predominantly uh, filled with men, white men. And she wanted to be a physician. But in 1938, uh, that field wasn't really open to women. Um, so she decided that she was going to go back to school and get a PhD in pathology. And she, she did that and got a job as a pathologist at Columbia. And it was during her autopsies that she came across a child that had been diagnosed with celiac disease, 
but actually it was cystic fibrosis. And that's when she first characterized the disease. But it took a very, very long time for this disease to become well known. I mean, it's, a, it's a, an orphan disease. It's only affects about 30,000 people in the US and about 70,000 worldwide. And because it is rare, you know, it took a very long time for pediatricians to, to learn about the disease and get a handle on it. Um, in 1955, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was formed by a very small group of desperate parents hoping to spread word about this disease and, and sort of kick off some research to find cures and treatments. Um, but even 20 years later, when Joey was born, you know, it wasn't something that pediatricians were used to diagnosing. Um, so it, it was very, very unfortunate that that, that happened to Joey. Now, I heard you give some numbers just a moment ago about the prevalence in the United States, and, and you called it an orphan disease. Is that, that prevalence uh, higher in the United States than elsewhere in the world? No. Um, well, let me, let me put it this way. Um, it is um, prevalent, more prevalent in Caucasians uh, than people of other races, but it is not um, exclusive to Caucasians. So it is, is most commonly found in the U.S. and in Western Europe. But they're also detecting, uh, recent researchers has found that there is also um, cases of this disease as far east as India. Uh, so while it's known um, predominantly in Europe and the United States, it is present in other countries. And you also talked about the origins of the disease being an inheritance from each of the parents of a gene. So this is a something that is uh, an unfortunate pairing of, of, of spouses. Is that basically what yeah, happens? Yeah, that's basically it. So this gene has been passed down from, you know, parent to child for millennia. And basically you need two broken copies of the CF gene to cause this disease. So the way you get it is you inherit one broken copy from one parent and one broken copy from the other. And that means that you don't have a functioning copy of that gene and you get the disease. Now the parents who are carriers um, show no symptoms whatsoever, which is why you know, it takes so many families off guard when their child is born with this disease, because often the carriers have no idea that they actually um, carry a bad copy of the gene. And are people screened for that nowadays to know in advance of it? Any... Yeah, people of European ancestry are screened before having children if they want carrier screening. Um and it is uh, cystic fibrosis is now uh, one of the tests that they perform on all newborns in all 50 states. So it is much better now uh, than it was many years ago. And there are, but you know, it can still slip through. For example, um, as there are more uh, marriages and unions between people of different ethnicities. Um, you can see cystic fibrosis in African-American children or children who have um, mixed parentage. Uh, so it, you know, it, it is uh, popping up in, in populations where you might not have expected it in the past. Well, let's return to Joey and his situation. You say that he began at some point to thrive and be a, what a, appeared to be a, a fairly normal boy with a normal childhood ever? Uh, yes, actually. Um, when he finally got out of the hospital, um, he was under the care of this wonderful pediatrician named Dr. Alan Lapey. And Dr. Lapey was an expert on cystic fibrosis, and he knew exactly the treatments to give Joey. No one expected him to live that long, given how, you know, he lived till age 12. 
No one expected him to live that long, given the terrible state of his lungs. But he received a lot of physical therapy. And what that physical therapy did was it knocked out all the horrible mucus that had built up in his lungs. And the problem with this thick, sticky mucus that you have in your lungs when you have cystic fibrosis is that it's a great place for bacteria to grow and thrive and destroy your lungs. So if you want to get rid of those infections, you have to knock out that mucus. So he, he had an intensive schedule of physical therapy for you know three to four hours every single day to clear his lungs. He also had enzymes to help him digest his food. He had antibiotics. So he was on a lot of medicines, needed a lot of care, and had to be very wary of infections. Um, but yes, he did. He he had a wonderful, though very short life. He had friends. He went to a regular private school. He hung out with his friends and he biked and he played and he played video games. And um, he had a he had a beautiful life. Um, you know, that was unfortunately just really cut short. Now, uh, you mentioned the therapy, the physical therapy. This is the illness where in order to, to dislodge that mucus, uh, the therapy includes pounding on the thorax, right? On the rib cage. Um, it involves, so this is actually, a little bit of this has been seen with um, COVID patients in that they lie on a board um, that is, you know, inclined and with their head facing down and the physical therapist would do this this clapping and pounding on their back and the sides of their ribs and it, it sort of sounded like you know um the the galloping horse you know it, it, it and they would take the it would take about three hours a day minimum to clear joey's lungs of this thick sticky mucus which would sort of be thumped out of his lungs the way you thump ketchup out of a, a ketchup bottle. Um, it's that sort of pounding action. And then he would cough up the mucus and, and you know, that would get rid of some of the bacteria. But ultimately, with most cystic fibrosis patients, it is the lung infections that end up killing them. And, and that was the case with Joey. Now, uh, let's draw a connection now to Joey, his parents, and their efforts to, to go before the public. This is where the, the heroism really comes in, because it seems that this family was intrepid and very selfless in their efforts to to kind of showcase him. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say showcase, but Joey um, advocated for himself and for other people CF patients um, very early on in his life. Uh, the, the, the O'Donnells were a fairly prominent family in Boston, uh, and Joe was a well-known businessman, and people knew about Joey's condition. So when there were small breakthroughs in treatments or some news about cystic fibrosis from the, from the scientific community, local news would often turn to the O'Donnells to get their take on it and to interview Joey and, and you know, talk to this young child who was, who had sort of a, an oversized personality and was very mature when he was talking about his own disease. Um, so, so that the public could be familiar with his condition and understand the implications for the advance. Uh, so they allowed Joey to, to talk to the press. It was always up to Joey whether he did that or not. They never pushed. And after Joey died, um, the O'Donnells had the Joey Fund. Um, it was a foundation that was... Um, it was working and it was established when Joey was alive. But after he died, they named it the Joey Fund. And the goal of this fund was to raise money for cystic fibrosis research and to fund good research that would eventually lead to a treatment or cure. 
Bijal Trivedi is with us. She's author of Breath from Salt, A Deadly Genetic Disease, A New Era in Science, and the Patients and Families Who Changed Medicine Forever. We're going to build a little bit of a bridge to the disease called polio after a short break here on Constant Wonder. Stay with us. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. We're learning about the treatment, the history of, of cystic fibrosis, and Bijal Trivedi is with us. She's author of Breath from Salt, A Deadly Genetic Disease, A New Era in Science, and the Patients and Families Who Changed Medicine Forever. Bijal Trivedi, I understand that some of these movers and shakers who wanted to do their very best uh, to, to somehow help science along they kind of modeled their efforts after what they saw had happened with, with previous polio epidemics? Yeah, the story is actually pretty incredible. So in 1955, um, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was formed. And the people that founded it were, it was just a small group of about 10 parents and, and family friends who, who were affected directly by this disease. And one of those people uh, was a woman named Doris Tulson. And Doris Tulson, um, her father was, was very involved in politics. And he knew Basil O'Connor. And Basil O'Connor had worked with FDR to develop the salt vaccine. And so he knew exactly what it took to defeat a disease and what it took to develop a vaccine for that disease and basically eradicate it. So when the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation formed, Doris Tulson and her father went to meet with Basil O'Connor and sort of find out what his takeaways were. You know, what did it take to gather the crit critical mass of science that was involved in developing a vaccine, in understanding the polio virus. I mean, what did it take to do this? And Basil O'Connor basically said to them, you know, don't waste your money on creating awareness for cystic fibrosis. You know, that's a waste of money. Spend every dime that you can on funding top quality research, top quality scientific research for this disease. Because it's only when you fund that research that you'll figure out what is the cause of this disease and how can we possibly treat it. And at the time, I mean, 1955, that was just a couple of years after the discovery of DNA. So these were early times. And, you know, it's not that they knew about genes and, and that there was a broken gene. They had absolutely no clue what caused cystic fibrosis in 1955. So they had to start from the beginning in terms of figuring it out. So the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's um, sort of exclusive focus on research in those early years was critical to their to their current success. Um, but that's, that's really what um, the polio effort donated to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was the knowledge that, you know, science has to lead the discussion. Science has to lead the way when you're talking about disease. Um, there's just no other way to do it. This is kind of uh, a bitter pill to swallow, though, if, in fact, you're a parent and you would like to see some of those dollars come to support for families who are, who are you, you know what I'm talking about, it's their money doesn't grow on trees, but you've got a child and you want to make sure that you and your family can get through this. Right. And so the with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, they were um, very savvy. So in the beginning... Um, in the early 1960s, so just after uh, the foundation, just a five years after the foundation formed, what they started doing was they started forming a series of care centers around the country. Because nothing was known about this disease, um, 
you know, the parents had nowhere to turn. So they started developing care centers around the country where all the patients could be seen. Now, these care centers were both for patient care and for research, because what they were able to do is because these patients were being seen within the foundation's care network, they could start to collect data on the patients. They could start to see, you know, what are the symptoms of this disease? Because you know, cystic fibrosis is, is a, a tricky disease. Not everyone has the same symptoms or the same severity. And so it could be, you know, it could be very mild in some people and it could be very severe in others. So they set up this, this network of care centers and that was something that the parents could rely on and get expert care for their children. And when I say expert care, it was evolving expert care because in the beginning there wasn't much, right? And then it, it sort of evolved to become better and better as more patients were seen and they got to a better understanding of the disease. So that came first. And then in the 80s, they started a program of research development centers. So first was patient care and later they started um, fundraising just for the purpose of funding these research centers that would only study cystic fibrosis. So that's kind of how they did it, because of course they had to pay attention to these children and get them some care and get them some treatment. Um, but they also realized that they had to do both. And the fundraising they did for the research efforts was, was critical, and they never let that go. So the care centers, is is that the bridge we're talking about, that the, the polio, there were care centers for patients of polio too? There were care centers for polio patients. Um, and these care centers were, I mean, this is where they had, you know, you hear stories about rows of iron lungs being set up in in various care centers. But what the polio effort did was they they funded um, research scientists to to figure out they they listed a, a set of questions that they needed to figure out about the virus about polio which viruses caused polio which were the you know which were the critical ones to understand and then they funded scientists who could address questions like you know how do we mass produce this virus how do we deactivate this virus how do we give it as a vaccination? So they were very, very targeted. You know, they weren't doing general basic scientific research on this virus. They were asking specific questions um, that would lead the scientists to milestones that would, you know, bring them to the to the vaccine quickly. And in a way, I suppose, if you have care centers that are expressly dedicated to the treatment of a single uh, uh, malady, like cystic fibrosis, that kind of corrals the efforts uh, of the scientists, too, around a pool of, of uh, case studies. That's right. And that was one thing that was, was really important with the foundation. You know, they had all these patients being seen at their care centers, um, that provided a, a population that was well studied and, as you said, corralled so that when scientists needed samples from those patients or needed participation from those patients in some element of medical research, then they had that population to turn to. So it, it was a resource for scientists in many ways. These patients would participate in the research. They would help the scientists and that was something that was critical because if you want to study a disease, you need the patients. And the foundation made it possible for the scientists to have access to those patients. I need you to help us out with a title, Breath from Salt. What does salt have to do with cystic fibrosis? Ah, so cystic fibrosis is one of the very few diseases that is characterized by uh, salty sweat. Uh, so what happens in this disease when you break this gene, both copies of this gene, or, you know, everybody has two copies of every single gene. But if you break both copies of the cystic fibrosis gene, you disrupt the salt 
and water balance throughout the whole body. So in the lungs, that means you get really thick, sticky mucus. In the gut, it means you can't absorb nutrients. But the skin is also affected and the, your sweat is abnormally salty. And in fact, that was the earliest way of diagnosing cystic fibrosis um, was to test the saltiness of the sweat. And people with abnormally salty sweat were diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. And so I wanted a title that was sort of literary and pretty and not, you know, the history of cystic fibrosis or something <laughs> like that. And, you know, this is, a, I feel like this is a disease where breath is stolen from the patients. And, you know, salt is the, is the compound that characterizes this disease. And so it's sort of bringing hope and breath to this, you know, this cold, salty disease. Uh, so that's that's sort of the uh, the background behind the title. Now, the genetic science breakthrough that uh, w- when did that exactly happen? When people finally said, "We understand what's going on here." Well, there was an early breakthrough in the um, in in the early nineteen eighties, and that came from a scientist named Paul Quinton, and he actually has cystic fibrosis. He's one of the oldest cystic fibrosis patient. He is still very much alive and, and kicking today. He's a really dynamic personality. He's a scientist with CF and he figured out what was going wrong with his sweat glands. He basically experimented um, by taking samples of his skin, dissecting out the sweat glands and figured out what was going wrong. So that provided a, a critical clue. And the clue was something was, was going wrong with the protein in the cell that moved, the, that moved um, one half of the, the salt molecule around. So half of the salt molecule is chloride. And this protein was broken and it couldn't move the, the chloride in and out of the cell. So that was a big clue. And then in 1989, um, a team of scientists from Canada and the U.S. Um, discovered the gene that caused cystic fibrosis, and that early clue was very was very important because when they found the gene, uh, the gene produced this sort of donut-shaped protein that provided a gateway for a molecule to go in and out. For an I'm sorry, for the chloride ion to go in and out of the cell. So the picture, you know, first clue was in early 1980s, then they found the gene in 1989. And at that point, they really thought they were going to cure this disease very quickly. From the tone of your voice, it didn't happen that way. It sure didn't. <laughs> it, you know, it was because you've got to remember that, you know, 1989, that was before the Genome Project. So the genome, the human genome, you know, your, your DNA that is, in, is present in every cell in your body, they didn't have the map of the genome yet. So they had no idea, you know, where all these genes were, what all these genes were. So these were early days. But there was one idea that was becoming very popular in the early 90s, and that was gene therapy. And the idea behind gene therapy was, okay, if you have a genetic disease and you have a gene that's broken, well, what if you give people a good copy of the gene? That should fix the disease. Um, so basically, you know, they started doing these experiments in animals, and it was true. If you could um, give animals a, a, a healthy copy of a gene, you could fix the genetic disease. And, you know, there were some very promising early trials with animals. There were some early um, successes with immune diseases um, and, and young children. And the gene therapy worked to a certain extent. But if you think about cystic fibrosis, this gene is broken in every single cell in the body. So how are you going to get a little piece of DNA into the cells and fix the person. Um, 
So this turned out to be an enormous challenge because the place where you really need to fix the cells, um, that's the lungs. And getting anything into the lungs is tricky, especially because they're all full of mucus. So what they did was they wrapped up a gene in an empty virus shell and put it into the lungs. But the immune system, as we all know from COVID, does not like viruses. So even though these special therapeutic gene therapy viruses were carrying a good, healthy gene, the immune system destroyed the gene before they could do any good. So gene therapy was a was a failure in the in the mid 90s. And, you know, people were starting to lose hope. People started to say, okay, well, maybe, maybe we can't treat cystic fibrosis. Maybe it's incurable. Are we left now with the kind of therapy that is treating the symptoms, extending life to the extent that we can? I know there are various medications that you talk about, but uh, how would you sum up where we are today in terms of uh, whatever therapies are being applied? Sure. Um, well, the the whole last part of the book is is sort of the the triumph of this story. And you know, after this terrible disease was characterized and they found the gene, and then gene therapy failed, uh, leaders at the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation um, tried a pretty radical strategy. And they said, okay, well, we can't give a healthy gene. Maybe we can fix the broken protein in all of these cells. Maybe we can, we can develop a drug that can just fix the bad protein that's in everyone's cells. So over the next, I would say, 12 years, um, they, started develop, they started working with a company that was called Aurora Biosciences and then later Vertex Pharmaceuticals, and they built drugs that basically fix this broken protein. So I mentioned earlier that this, this protein is kind of like a donut, and it has an open circle in the center, and it lets a chloride go in and out. Well, in a lot of these people, the donut is in the wrong place, or it's broken and it's squished. The drugs that this company developed um, with early, early seed funding from the foundation, it gets the donut protein in the right place in the cell. And in cases where the donut is sort of crushed or crumpled and the hole is closed, it opens up that donut. Um, so basically, the new strategy is to fix the broken protein. And that's a maintenance drug, I would presume, that somebody would be then uh, for a lifetime taking that, I don't know, daily or, or with f Absolutely. great frequency. Um, it's, it's a, you know, the, depending on your mutation and there are different drugs to fit different mutations, um, you will take this pill for the rest of your life. But what the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is now doing is funding other types of research because Gene therapy has sort of gone through a revolution in the last 20 years, and that is looking more promising for some cases. They're also looking into a molecule called mRNA, which you might be familiar with because the Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines are made of mRNA. So they're looking at mRNA treatments for this disease. So, you know, now that there are solid treatments for 90% for of CF patients, the foundation has moved on to looking to develop, you know, the ultimate cure. Um, so that is the next step for them. But, you know, at the moment, there are treatments for 90% of CF patients. You know, what you say about the next step for the next cure tells me that you're probably the kind of author who wants to see a second edition made necessary really soon. Were you... <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm also a very patient person. It took me eight years to write this book because the science kept on evolving so quickly <laughs> and new medicines were developed. And I kept saying to my publisher, oh, wait, there's this great thing on the horizon that's going to happen more patients will be helped by it. And let's just say I have a very patient publisher and an amazing editor, and they let me do my thing. But you know, this, this one book 
you know, from start to finish took about eight years because um, I was covering the science. So I know that the next big leap in technology, uh, that's not going to happen for a little while. But you are right. I am I am going to keep covering. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> uh, but that's a good position to be in where the science is advancing that rapidly that the journalist has to keep up with it. That's That's a good place to be. It is. And it's a good place for patients. And, you know, all I have to just stick this in because the patients are so amazing. They really embrace the idea that, you know, if you want a drug, you have to participate in medical research and they really advocate for themselves. And it's, they're just sort of a model community um, for you know, all Americans, because, you know, you've seen what's happened as this, as the COVID vaccine has been developed. Um, if you want a vaccine, you've got to participate in clinical trials. And looking at this community, I have to say, I was very inspired and I signed up. I didn't, I didn't get called on to participate in, in the end, but, you know, it made me want to step up and, and, and offer and help. Um, so I was very inspired by the patients and the, the parents. I mean, what they've achieved is amazing. It is an inspiring story. And to think about a community of people all rallying around the same cause and doing their part, that you, you tell the story very well. And it's been just a, a pleasure to hear uh, directly from you about it today. Bijal Trevedi, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been such fun. I appreciate it. Bijal Trevedi is a freelance journalist. She specializes in biology, health, and medicine. She's author of Breath from Salt, A Deadly Genetic Disease, A New Era in Science, and The Patients and Families Who Changed Medicine Forever. Now, of course, any ray of hope for those families suffering from this and other devastating genetic diseases is going to be absolutely welcome. We are going to move on next with an exploration of CRISPR therapy, gene editing, the doability and the ethics of it all when we return to constant wonder in a moment. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. We're going to resume our medical discussion of this hour with a foray now into the topic of gene editing. We got going with a very hopeful story about a devastating inherited disease, cystic fibrosis. And in the course of that conversation, you might remember we touched on the problem of delivery of genetic material. How do you get corrected genes deep into the body of anybody and into the lungs, into the organs where they need to be? And we're going to continue poking at that question of delivery now with Dr. Neville Sanjana, who is affiliated with the New York Genome Center and the NYU Medical School. Even if you can fix DNA in a test tube or you can fix DNA that's in cells that are just growing in a dish, those are totally different problems than being able to fix um, cells that are part of an organ system, you know, buried deep within a living person. And so um, that's uh, its own kind of field. And it's a really exciting, um, that's another very exciting area. I think one thing that's important to distinguish, um, as you just mentioned gene therapy quickly, is that, um, you know, there's actually kind of two fields that are interesting to distinguish. One is gene therapy and the other is gene editing. And gene therapy is something that's actually um, been around for a long time. It's kind of been in fits and starts. And that's the, the ability to just replace maybe a gene, just to introduce a new gene or a gene that's broken. And that's a little bit different than gene editing, um, which is what a lot of the folks are talking about with CRISPR. Gene editing is... Um, kind of more like surgery on a broken gene. So it's instead of just adding a new gene in, gene editing is about maybe modifying or fixing a gene that's that's already in the in the genome. And they're they're kind of they're kind of similar but they're also uh, distinct distinct processes and gene therapies we actually do have some approved gene therapies right now. But gene editing is is really um, a newer beast and it's something that's still working its way through uh, early clinical trials. So when we hear of gene or genetic material being somehow blasted into, you know, there's a very kind of a violent process at a very microscopic level where they shoot 
genetic material. Is that is that on the therapy side or on the editing side? Yeah. So I, I, I guess I, I'm not. I don't know exactly what you mean by by that that process, but um, I'll give you an example of of what's gene therapy, but not gene editing. So so um, in your introduction, you mentioned the this kind of revolution of of gene editing being something that's programmable. And I think that's that's one of the things that's gotten people so excited is we see how much other programmable things like uh, computers, personal computers, the internet have changed our lives just over the last 30, 40 decades, right? You know, computers were, were in just a few places in the 1970s and 1980s. And now that they went into the home, that they're programmable, they're everywhere, right? They're in our pocket, they're everywhere. And I, I think it's kind of a similar um, analogy you can make with gene editing. Uh, with the genome, we were able to sequence it, we were able to read it out before. It's kind of like being able to, to read a book, but we, we couldn't manipulate it like the way that if you have a Mac at home or you have a, a computer where you can code, you can really modify the contents of that book and you can run it and see how does, how does that change? I, I don't know if that, that analogy connects with you, but uh, this, this is really the key difference is the idea of programmability. Gene therapy is, is really um, a, a simpler kind of programmability in some way. It's just introducing something that, that wasn't there before or was there in a, in, a, in a way that wasn't working. But uh, gene editing is really amazing because it allows you to go to a very specific piece of the code and do this, this kind of cut, copy, and paste similar to what you might do with a, a text editor or Microsoft Word. Well, let's stay with that verb to cut well, and, and maybe to paste, but scissors is a, is a metaphor I keep hearing with CRISPR technology. The idea right. that you can go in and snip something. Is this a literal physical snipping of a strand of DNA? It is, yeah. There's, there's many different types of gene editing technology that are based on CRISPR that have kind of developed, but the fundamental uh, CRISPR technology and the, the kind of the famous CRISPR enzyme, which is called Cas9, is a pair of molecular scissors. And instead of, you know, cut and paste on a piece of paper or cut, copy and paste on a computer, the, the cutting here is really that, that double helix of DNA, that famous, you know, double helix uh, discovered by uh, Watson and Crick and Franklin um, many, many years ago now that we all see in high school biology. So the cutting of that is not tearing the two strands apart, but cutting both strands? It, yes, that's right. Exactly. It's not tearing the double helix apart, but it's making a cut uh, in, you know, between, the, between those uh, at a particular location. And that's, again, where this programmability comes into play which is that, you know, we need the ability, the, the genome's a huge place. There's 3 billion bases. That's 3 billion A's, T's, C's, and G's, which is kind of like the basic letters that make up the genome. And 3 billion letters is, is a very, very large book. So it's important that when we apply things like these scissors, that we have some precision, that we're not making cuts willy-nilly, but that we're making them exactly where we want them to be. And you might think, well, what, what good is it if you're cutting a gene that's broken? So the cut can trigger endogenous gene repair mechanisms that um, are necessary for our cells to have because we walk outside in the sunlight and UV can trigger from the sun can trigger DNA damage. So our cells have all these mechanisms to actually um, kind of repair cuts. So CRISPR kind of takes advantage of that by making a cut, it triggers the DNA repair machinery to go to a particular site. And we can, by putting in other things into that, um, along with CRISPR, we can actually make, uh, instead of just having the damage be repaired in, a, uh, in, in some way, we can actually introduce a new uh, little bit of DNA in, allowing us to correct gene mutations. So in a way, the gene wants to repair itself and will use available material. And if you've introduced new material, it might grab that. That's right. And this stimulates that repair. The thing is, the repair won't happen without the stimulation of this, of this cutting event happening. And so the CRISPR nuclease, as we call it, nuclease is just the technical term for a pair of molecular scissors that cuts a nucleic acid like DNA. Um, 
it's, it stimulates this endogenous gene repair mechanisms. Now in the years, that's the kind of just plain vanilla CRISPR, which is extremely powerful. But in the years following these first applications that of, of human gene editing, um, we've now harnessed CRISPR in, in other ways in which we've actually turned off the cutting part of the enzyme, but we use it still to hone in on particular regions in the genome. So we use it kind of as a, a, a guiding device that guides us somewhere. And then we can tether other enzymes to this non-cutting CRISPR to maybe make other kinds of changes. Um, so it's not necessary that you need cutting all the time, but certainly CRISPR in its kind of original form and its most basic form is a pair of scissors that cuts DNA. Let's talk about why these cuts would be made in the first place specific to disease categories or types. What kinds sure. of diseases are we talking about? Are we talking about infections? Are we talking about genetic mutations that you mentioned earlier? Are we talking all of the above? I have no idea what diseases, other than I think cancer is involved in, in this story. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, many kinds of uh, diseases where you can imagine something like somatic gene, gene editing um, using CRISPR to be something uh, helpful. So there's uh, literally hundreds of inborn metabolic disorders. There's different types of uh, hemophilias, uh, blood anemias like uh, sickle cell anemia and beta thalassemia. Um, there's uh, her very serious hereditary forms of cancer. Uh, there's uh, uh, muscular dystrophy, Tay-Sachs, neurodevelopmental disorders, and just many, many more things that um, are very rare diseases, only found in maybe a few patients. And um, I think the, the great thing about CRISPR is that it's not really uh, a, a tool designed for one disease. It's really a platform. It's more like a programming language where we can, um, it's because this enzyme is guided to its target by a so-called guide RNA, we can program that guide RNA to go to different genes responsible for different diseases. Just in recent days in the news, I've heard a word, I've caught wind of CRISPR technology being perhaps valuable in the diagnosis of COVID-19. Uh, or, the, or the presence of the coronavirus, or, or I don't know exactly how to say that, but certainly this is a, a timely story. Uh, what can you say, what do you know, what, have you, what are you hearing about yeah. CRISPR not being used to maybe edit genes, but just to locate them and identify them? Sure, yeah. I think there's folks interested in exploring CRISPR both on the diagnostic side and also even on, a, on the therapeutic side. And I think the most important thing to know about um, COVID-19 or, or more specifically the virus that causes that disease called SARS-CoV-2 is that it's a little bit of a different beast than us. So animals, um, all animals and plants, we, um, the genetic information, the, the thing that kind of runs us, the computer code is a kind of nucleic acid called DNA. And as many folks probably know, SARS-CoV-2 is one of these strange um, other kinds of organisms in the, in, in, uh, on Earth that actually has an RNA genome and doesn't involve DNA in any part really of its life cycle. It, it lives entirely as, uh, as an RNA organism where the RNA encodes instructions to make the proteins that are also involved in the virus. And one really beautiful thing about CRISPR um, is that uh, these uh, the, the CRISPRs that are commonly um, used, most of them target DNA. And cr CRISPR itself is really a bacterial immune system uh, that the bacteria use to fight off their own natural uh, predators, viruses that are DNA viruses. But because there's so many different bacteria, there's tremendous diversity of bacteria in the world. Um, there's also CRISPR systems that have evolved in these bacteria as part of their immune systems to fight off RNA-based uh, viruses or to destroy RNA. And so some of these other CRISPR enzymes, not um, really Cas9, the, the kind of famous one that targets DNA, but some of these other ones like Cas13 target RNA. And these can be um, very useful for building diagnostics and also potentially therapeutics for um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 because it's not a DNA organism. It only lives as, as an RNA virus. 
So, from my perspective, having listened very carefully and trying to follow what you're saying there,、uh, what what I'm retaining right now is that in diagnostics of a disease like this COVID-19 outbreak, CRISPR might soon be at the forefront of of testing to just just to to take samples of genetic material from humans. I don't know spit perhaps and 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 do tests with it. That's that's right. People are、um, innovating like crazy right now, as I'm, I'm sure everyone is aware. That it's、um, it's really、uh, nice to see. You know, there's there's a lot of negatives. I think with、uh, obviously with what's happened with COVID nineteen over the last few months. But one thing that's been a small、um, uh, piece of good news is really seeing the scientific community innovate quickly and think about new ways to do things.、Um, they're very established forms of testing. Uh, for uh, for for viral infections, include the、uh, PCR test that we've all heard a lot about, the quantitative PCR test, which tests for the presence of the virus's RNA, or antibody tests, which test for、uh, the presence of antibodies for people who've already had the infection.、Uh, but those are those are kind of well-worn platforms, and、um, naturally, a lot of attention has been paid to those. What's really, I think, very cool about the CRISPR-based diagnostics is they potentially have some very、um, uh, powerful advantages in detecting the RNA over things like the PCR test. And those advantages are things that, like,、uh, that they might be able to be just done at home.、Uh, they could be quite a bit cheaper.、Uh, they certainly don't require the specialized equipment. So to do things like PCR, which stands for polymerase chain reaction,、uh, you need a molecular biology lab. You need、um, machines like、um, these quantitative PCR machines、uh, to to run the reaction, which which involves stepping through several different temperatures repeatedly, and then having a, a fancy device that that can read out、um, the the、uh, uh, fluorescence of the reaction. So you need a lot of lab equipment. Um, what's been nice is is work that's done by folks like Feng Zhang and、uh, Jim Collins and others have shown really that CRISPR-based diagnostics、um, you could even freeze dry the CRISPR proteins, so、um, you know make them so you don't need any special storage conditions like you need for the qPCR reagents.、Um, transport them to difficult places, you know, on site、um, in in places that don't have labs. Uh, that don't have temperature control、uh, ability, and still have active enzyme that you can then use with a very simple readout, like a lateral、uh, strip, a lateral flow strip test, similar to what folks.、Uh, that's a, a fancy term for what what you might be familiar with as a pregnancy test. Same kind of readout with a colored band. Dr. Neville Sanjana is an expert on gene therapy. Sanjana is affiliated with the New York Genome Center and the NYU Medical School. Thanks for joining with me today for Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith.